11 minutes past nine, and that's the first choice song of our guest presenter. Who is our guest presenter this morning? We know her as Advocate Tuli Madonsela. She is now Professor Tuli Madonsela. She's an advocate and a professor of law, holding a chair in social justice at Stellenbosch University since January 2018. And, of course, well-known as the public protector of South Africa from 2009 until 2016. Prof, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. Greetings to you and to the listeners. Thank you. So, Prof, we had a little bit of a discussion offline, and the question was, do you think she prefers to be called Professor Maroncella, Advocate Maroncella? What do you think uh, her title is now? And I assumed it was Professor because that's really the space you're working in now. No, that's true. That's the current title. I'll always be advocate, Madam Fela, because unless I do something wrong, it will be, um, it will always be a secondary title. So we could, of course, give you a third title, which is one that you've noted, which is that as Magatsi. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. I love that <laughs> title. And I do think people treat me as one, even though I'm no longer the public protector. They still ask me to whisper on their behalf to authorities. So, so Prof, tell us, uh, for those people who don't know what a Makatsi is, what is that role? How does it play out in community? A Makatsi is similar to the original conception of the pub protector. It's an aunt, a very senior aunt in the vendor community, whose role is to be the eyes and ears of the king mm. and and the voice of the people. She's sort of a conscience of the state. She gets to mingle with everyone in the community to understand how do they perceive the way they governed and how do they want to be governed? What do they want from the rulers? So in a new democracy, what do they want from those who govern? And then the aunt takes those things to back to those who govern and tells them that your people are unhappy, they want you to fix one, two, three. And in the process, she would also explain to the people how things work in the mm-hmm. event that there is a wrong perception. And it is traditionally said that a king ignores a makati. Um, at their own peril. Hmm. So if we take that, I mean, it's a really interesting, uh, even that comment, a king ignores a Makatsi at their own peril. I mean, many of the words you've used here, you've talked about governing, you've talked about rulers, and we look to governments as well. Really what you're talking about is leadership, and it's something that we discuss quite a bit on this show, is that people use the term quite frequently, and often um, perhaps quite glibly as well. And I'd love to know from you as someone who has led and does lead in your different capacities, what do you believe that leadership means? And what do you feel that your parents may have taught you about leadership as well? Thank you. I understand leadership to be the art of influencing and inspiring yourself and others to think and act in a particular way. Yeah. So it's an art of some sort. It involves influencing, it involves inspiring. 
but it starts with influencing and inspiring yourself, then influencing and inspiring others. And then you inspire them. They've got to think in a particular way and act in a particular way. Leadership could be what you do and what you say. But ultimately, people are more likely to do what you do. For example, in South Africa, the Constitution expects a particular way of leading. It talks about democratic governance, not government, governance, meaning that the architects of our democracy always expected a partnership between the people and those who exercise state power and control over state resources. It was supposed to be a partnership. And in other words, people, the people's role was not just to elect every five years and then disappear. It was a constant dialogue on what needs to be done. Is it being done in the interest of the people? Is it being done in accordance with the constitutional vision and principles? And then thirdly, that didn't always work out. And when I was part protector, I found out issues around, for example, governing for social justice had flown out of the window. Yeah. And leaders never mentioned social justice, for example, even though it was right away in the preamble that we, the people, adopt this constitution to heal the divisions of the past and establish a society based on democratic governance values, social justice, and fundamental human rights. Basically, whoever governs was supposed to govern according to those three things. Are you doing it in terms of democratic governance? Are you advancing social justice? In, In other words, are you reducing the poverty and inequality that you found in the system? And thirdly, are you advancing the equal enjoyment of all human rights by all? So, you know, Prof, you, you talk about what you do and what you say, and unfortunately, often uh, people, not, not unfortunately, actually, fortunately, people follow what you do. And then you spoke about this idea of partnership, the partnership between civil society or citizens, rather than just civil society, but citizens mm. and mm. their government. So that social compact is something that I think a lot of us question. Is the social compact there? Does it need to be re-looked at? And if it needs to be re-looked at and really reactivated, what would be the actions required to do so? Thank you, Michelle. The social compact is not holding, and partly because I think we never went back to take the preamble, as my university is doing, by the way, mm. and say, okay, this is the basis for take-off. Yeah. And what does it mean? I mean, it's Vanquishing Visit, we're putting a huge plug on the preamble because we think, honestly, it's less possible that you'll disagree if there's an agreement on where are you going and what are the principles that will govern your partnership. Yeah. And that's what the preamble gives us. Where are we going and what are the principles that will governing that will govern our work together? And I think that's where we've 
with sales, we do need to see it. And it's said that government is pushing ahead, for example, with the recovery program. And, and it should because we're in a hurry. But I do hope that it will leave room for us meeting as soon as possible as a nation in little groups and eventually in a big group to agreeing on this big reset and say, how do we use the very same constitution as our North Star yep. for Absolutely. this reset process? Yeah. And we all need to look back and see if we have, in fact, uh, if we need to revalue our North Star as well, because I think often uh, that North Star seems to have shifted slightly into the East and the West, actually. So, you know, Prof, you, you, you mentioned your, your new institution, of course, Stellenbosch University, and we're going to go into that in depth uh, in the second half with two guests that you have brought through. And you really do have um, some wonderful guests. But I suppose what kind of intrigued me was I was thinking about the concept of you going into an educational institution. In many ways, that's you going back to your original position. So, yes, you were the public protector, but many years ago you were, in fact, um, a teacher, an assistant teacher at the very school that you studied at, Evelyn Baring High School in Swaziland. How does that feel when you think back to that time? And I ask you that question as well because Sandile and Durban wants to know, who are you from primary education? <laughs> well, it really would appear to me that my purpose in life is to learn and teach. And all of this seems to have happened randomly. But in the end, it's all coming together because every time I learn something, I'm always looking at who can we learn this together with mm. and move the things forward. And I was fortunate that the principal of my old school at Evenbearing High School and gave me an opportunity to teach whilst waiting to go to university. In Swaziland, university starts in August. And when I delinquently left university, <laughs> <laughs> I was a university dropout. Yeah, good I for you. Did, At least we know I people do that. Work, this wouldn't take me with O-levels, wanted E-levels. Yeah. I taught again at Malady High. And then when that to, uh, whilst waiting for university to start, I taught a little bit again in Swaziland and then went back to university. And when I joined the trade union movement, I was responsible for various matters, but where I led without a title was again in education, trade yeah. union education. Yeah. Which, of course, is adult education as well and talks to lifelong learning, which is something yeah. we were talking about earlier. Yeah, absolutely, because we need to all read from the same hymn book. And without some form of learning, we're not able to strengthen and advance democracy. I mean, yeah. a lot of people, for example, reject democracy. But when we train them and teach them about what is democracy and how can you articulate it differently than the way it is done now, people suddenly have an aha moment to say, oh, democracy is a plastic concept or it has plasticity and it can be molded to meet the needs of any society. So prof slash advocate slash makatsi slash educator, the list goes on. Your first song was Vicky Sampson, Advoc uh, African Dream, Advocate's Dream as well. 
And uh, we, we actually looked at your list of songs, and I have to tell you that we all went, it's not surprising. Her songs actually, <laughs> they are not surprising at all. And your next song, in fact, um, PJ Powers. Tell us a little bit about that second choice. Well, I've got faith. Both the African Dream and I've got, I've got Faith are songs that I would love every African to sing, particularly at the time of COVID. Mm. Just to understand that as long as you have a dream, as long as you have faith that it can be achieved, it can be achieved. And then look back at where we've been to and how we've overcome adversities that are probably worse than COVID, but yeah. we came out better. Yes, we may have challenges, but certainly today is better than yesterday. You know, I follow you on Twitter, and every day you put out a thought which is very much in line with what you've just said. Do you believe that uh, the constant reiteration of those ideas could strengthen us? Absolutely. I, I know for a fact, and neurosciences say so, that without hope, it's really difficult to overcome difficult situations. You have to have a way of believing that whatever you're going through, there's a way out of it. Yeah. And that allows you to push through. That distinguishes uh, between people who die, for example, when they, they're going through snow or storms or things like that. Those with hope will find a way. Those who lose hope, they yield to adversity. <laughs> I notice that you say hope and not optimism. Well, for me, no, they are both together. I'm one of those who believe that hope gives you banning optimism. So the optimism is more of a do thing. Hope is the long-term thing. What do you really hope is achievable? And optimism gets ignited. And you have to have banning optimism to get out of things. We're chatting to Professor Tuli Madoncela. She's our guest for today. She has some great guests in the second half. And this is her second song. So rumor has it she um, is a total house party kind of a girl. That's the choice of our guest today, Professor or Advocate Tuli Madoncela. PJ Powers featuring Skiven Cash and I Got Faith. Just got an SMS from someone, a WhatsApp from someone saying, Advocate Tuli Madoncela, what a fresh breath of air, different, unique. You can feel her presence. That's from Tsokolo. She is the Makatsi. You are right, Tsokolo, for sure. It's 9.30 and uh, she's in the studio to give us uh, all the sporty kind of stuff that we require. <laughs> the Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM. Destination unknown. So we are going to talk to two of your guests, uh, Professor Madoncela, and uh, they are very interesting guests. Both of them will be talking at the Social Justice Summit, which is Professor Jonathan Jansen and also the legal journalist Karen Morn, who we were delighted to have on the show, I think a few months, quite a few months ago. So, Prof... The Social Justice Summit, how does it stop being a talk shop? How do you ensure that many of the themes that are covered, many of the, the narratives that are covered, are then taken into a very proactive uh, space? 
has a way of making sure that our social justice families are not talk shows or talk shops. The first one, for example, ended up with an approved social justice M plan and a declaration. And based on that, we've been able to intervene on COVID-19 and form Scotland. And we're currently in the process of piloting a poverty and equality mapping exercise in Swatland municipality. So it's an ongoing process. That's why it's not possible to to speak at the level of a talk shop. Secondly, at this particular summit, we are launching the M Fund, which is one of the four pillars of the Musa Plan for Social Justice. At the level of the thematic areas, we make sure that, number one, we bring people who already are doing research mm. in that area to share that research and, and get input on their research. And then we're using this applied research to intervene and we write, for example, to government hmm. policy statements and briefs to say this is how we view this issue and we could handle it in, in the following manner. You, you may have seen, for example, a an economic policy research report that talks about new one new wine in new wine scheme. It's a product or an output of the agreements of the first social justice summit. You know, I really like hearing that because I think for many of us, this idea of another webinar or summit or whatever, it makes one feel a little bit anxious, certainly makes me feel anxious because as much as I think that a lot is often discussed, one critically needs to say, well, how do you take what is discussed and then turn it into a physical action, an activity, an operation, whatever the case may be. So that's really very important to hear. You know, Prof, your your books that you've chosen also reflect your next guest, which is Professor Jonathan Jansen. And in particular, I'm thinking of the book that you've chosen, South Africa Schooling, The Enigma of Inequality by Nick Spall and Jonathan Jansen, a fantastic book, Um, very powerful. And in fact, one of the first times that I ever heard the term um, a binding constraint, which is what we spoke about a little bit earlier um, here on the show, which is the idea, of course, that something that is not resolved, well, you know what a binding constraint is, but that something that is not resolved um, immediately can't help things potentially move into the new world, if you want to call it that. And in many ways, education is South Africa's binding constraint, isn't it? Not. Absolutely. They make a point that education influences all areas of life. And I think that's a point that Nelson Mandela made when he said that education is uh, a powerful weapon that we can use to change the world. Incidentally, in the past, under apartheid, Serviet also knew that education was a powerful weapon that could be used to shape society. Hence, he's targeting education and dumbing down for certain groups mm. and upgrading it for certain groups because exactly. it was a tool to to steal people in a particular way, to shape their mindset in a particular way, and to structure opportunities in a particular way. 
But you can use the same philosophy of social engineering to use education as an instrument of change. But starting with looking at what does it look like now? What did we inherit from the past that must be disrupted first so that we can have a reset and then build anew and build better? So we do have uh, your first guest, Professor Jonathan Jansen, on the line. Prof. Jansen, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. I'm sorry that it's early in the morning, but uh, we hope that it is the start of a wonderful day for you. What time do you get up, then? This is midday. I'm having lunch. Oh, Jonathan, I get up at like at least this morning I got up at quarter to five. I thought excellent. that was excellent. <laughs> So I want to put a question to both of you, and it is very much in line with um, what, uh, Prof, uh, you were saying now about Prof Maroncello, what you were saying, the too many profs in the room, wow, is, is this idea of education as an instrument of change. Now, a little bit earlier, we were talking to um, the uh, Abdullah Varache, the author of a book called Disruption Amplified, and he obviously is at the University of, of Pretoria. But one of the things we were talking about is, is our education appropriate for the journey that we need to make as we move forward? For example, even if we look at issues of how we look at empathy, how do we look at um, emotional intelligence, given that we are moving into a world which is becoming more extensively around technology and the haves and there will be always like access for certain people to technology and no access for others. So is our education right now, is it the right instrument of change? And I'll, I'll, I'll hand over to you, Prof. Jansen, as you eat your lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on dessert. Um, look, I, I think what is important, to, and this is why I'm so glad that this is called a social justice um, you know, uh, uh, symposium led by, by Professor Mavixella, is that it takes us out of the logic of education simply meaning the learning of skills or, or preparation for the workplace, mm. you know, or economic development and that kind of language. It also deals with issues of social justice, and that means what we teach, how we teach it, to whom we teach it. Uh, also matters, you know, uh, as I say uh, often when I speak at these uh, fancy elite schools in South Africa, I say to them, you know, I'm quite sure that your um, school will give you good marks in math and science. What I am not sure about is whether they will teach you how to be a decent human being, how to be a citizen that is active, how to respect women, how to, you know, and be comfortable amongst people who don't look like you or pray like you. So so the social justice umbrella draws attention to the broader purposes of education and not only its more, you know, instrumental ends. So Prof Madonsela, I'll I'll hand to you, uh, having heard Prof Jansen, this idea of education as it starts to teach social justice. And we're not talking necessarily adult education, but also ECD would take us right back to early childhood development and that kind of schooling as well. Absolutely. Good morning, Prof Jansen. Um, uh, maybe just to publicly also thank you for endorsing our book, Mela's Kingdom, which oh, also does you. have channels of social justice to the young ones. There's two things I agree with Prof Jansen that education 
is a great vehicle for sowing the seeds of social justice because that's where the injustice starts. Um, indifference to difference and indifference to disadvantage and just downright straight discrimination. We have to constantly look at the books, the materials to make sure that they do not foster, unconsciously of course, but they don't foster an attitude that um, exalts certain groups and stigmatizes certain groups. Then the second thing is about using education to model equality. Prof. Janssen says in the book on page 365, in any of South Africa's nine provinces, you could, within 30 minutes or less drive, from one of the most affluent schools in the world to one of the poorest and most dysfunctional schools anywhere. One set of schools would both rolling green fields and state-of-the-art computer laboratories, and the other would be seated with pit latrines into which, from time to time, a child falls and even drowns. What are you teaching children about their humanity, about their dignity? It's just from the cradle we exposed to these two worlds. The other one that says we deserve the best that society can give you. The other one that says we deserve the worst that society can throw at you. You know, Prof, you've, you you mentioned your book, both of you, Mellow's Kingdom, which uh, you have launched or released literally in the last two weeks. And that talks to uh, fighting, I mean, really fighting against the word you used earlier, indifference, which just actually is the most terrible way for us to be. Talk to us a little bit about um, Mellow's Kingdom. Well, it is a, a little cute book. It is. But, <laughs> but with big ideas. And the big idea is that it to restore storytelling as an art yeah. and as an opportunity for families to come together and, and, and uh, celebrate each other. Increasingly, people feel isolated, alienated. Young people are increasingly feeling unheard, unseen, unwanted, and mm. not belonging. And there's a little bit of an opportunity to bring them together. But while doing that, to plant among young people the, the kinds of values of Ubuntu that we were brought up with, the values of empathy, compassion, Ubuntu, uh, courage, teamwork, love, and lastly, to plant some spirituality, although we use God a lot, but people can look at it as planting our young people in a foundation of spiritual encouragement. And we anchor that spirituality in diverse, it could be diverse religions, but as you say, it can also be spirituality at its most uh, Intrinsic, You know, you mentioned that uh, Melo's Kingdom is a small story. And in fact, the theme of a Sunday show here on SFM, this show is small stories, big ideas, massive inspiration. So, wow. That's beautiful. So I think that in many ways you, you have covered that. Prof. Johnson, you... Um, are working and you have just uh, had the, the award when you've got your knowledge in the blood and that does talk to 
what I suppose what we're talking about all the time, which is the politics of knowledge. Maybe just uh, address that very briefly in relation to the idea of social justice. Yeah, you know, so so knowledge, as you know, pretty, uh, in very simple terms, is, is is not equally available to all children. Mm. And and I'm just busy writing as we speak a piece on early childhood education, and, um, and which I I know will come up at the conference. Um, and I mean, it's too really really sad reality. The one is that there's a huge gap. Um, you know, between children who, uh, when they get to grade one, between children who went to quality preschool education uh, uh, services and those who were essentially in childcare. And so that's the bad news that at grade one, the, start, they, the, the children started very uneven, you know, levels of, of readiness. The really bad news is that that gap never really closes up over 12 years of schooling. We now have good research to show that. And so one of the things we must draw attention to is uh, how do we make sure that both government and the private sector invest much more heavily in giving an adequate and a just education to children between zero and six. Yeah. So that we secure those benefits over the subsequent years of schooling, and I'm hoping that some of the illustrious panelists at this symposium will will focus on because so much of our focus over the past few years, as you know, especially since 2015, has rightly been on on university uh, funding and and fees must fall and all of that. I'm not saying that's not important, but very few children get to to post school education. Precisely because the foundations are weak. Yeah, yeah. If you don't have a strong foundation, the building will fall. I mean, there's no doubt. Yeah. Prof. Jonathan Jansen, we sadly have to say goodbye to you to get on to uh, uh, Professor Madonsela's second <laughs> guest. But I want to say thank you very much. Um, Always interested in your writings and your readings, and certainly I appreciate the fact that you were invited onto the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Prof. Maroncella, your second guest, the one and only Karen Morn. She's a rock star in journalism, some say. (laughs) (laughs) And Karen, I only say that as well because I just saw something you tweeted recently where people took their, you took your uh, greatest photo, what you said was your greatest photo, and you (laughs) turned it into an album cover, you know, with explicitly (laughs) advisory lyrics. uh, And I did laugh. I thought you... Did it very well. There was Karen with her camera dish or her microphone right at the back of some really heavy-looking people, as we all know. <laughs> Karen, you are—you've um, been on the show before, and it's a delight to be talking to you again. Um, you are on the prof's task team. I don't even know what does it mean to be on a task team for Professor Madoncella. Well, basically, it means that you get to listen to a whole bunch of highly intelligent people who have incredible proficiency in specific areas yeah. tell you about very viable solutions to sort of fix and, and contribute to, um, you know, addressing social inequality in South Africa. So I just stand there and look cute and try and understand half the time, you know, that I really understand the full depth of what what these people are saying. But it's an incredible honor, and I really appreciate the opportunity that it gets 
gives to me, mm-hmm. um, particularly in the area that I was asked to um, moderate on last year, which was on land, and to really hear insights from people who actually have viable solutions to some of mm-hmm. our most profound issues around social inequality come up with, you know, and, and, and actually see what can work because people are coming up with ideas and, and programs that are working. They're just doing it so outside of the sphere of, of government. And I think that's really the point and the solution that we as a society have to embrace at this particular point in our history. So you mentioned outside of government, and this is a question to both of you, and it's, it's a critical one, is that at a certain point, we can't can, we can't alone work outside of government. We have to see that uh, mm-hmm. trans sectoral engagement, public sector, private sector, and third sector or civil society, also media. Um, how does one how does one resolve that? I mean, I, it's like eating the elephant in the room, a tiny bite at a time. But I suppose, Karen, perhaps you could uh, give us an insight on how you think it works. My thing is, is that we can't depend on government to come up with solutions because government, um, you know, inherited ultimately, you know, a country that was broken. We were, you know, defined by structural um, racism from day one, um, and that will have an impact. That means a grossly unequal broken education system, which is probably our greatest, should be our greatest priority because yeah. it's the most effective way that we can address social inequality. But it's this idea that we can't, um, depend or look to government to come up with solutions. And um, not least of all because of the kind of endemic cancerous corruption that has defined, for instance, with the land program with the SIU finding the sort of one in four of the previous proactive land acquisition uh, programs which were meant to um, enable people to have add land and to, to create their own farms were, were in fact either irregular or corrupt. So we are dealing with with quite a profoundly broken system. And I think, um, you know, one of the the, the economic reports that was released under the mantle of of the social justice chair under Chile Malincera was that um, new wine into new wine skins report, which was fascinating, which is really about how do you come up with, with systems that are going to work? Because we can't, working with a system that is so inherently broken, so deeply corrupt, is only going to perpetuate the problem. So we're at a point now where we have to find viable ways of of getting engagement from government, and there are many within government who know the issues, who know the problems, who do want change. But unfortunately, um, you know, they're often stymied by very uncooperative bureaucracy and and by people who don't want the system to change because they they benefit from the chaos, the irregularity and, and the corruption. So, okay, if we look at that and we look at what is going to come out of the Social Justice Summit, Prof. Maroncela, what would you like to see given what, specifically what Karen has spoken about coming through? We would like to see, well, firstly, greetings, Karen. You you have contributed immensely in terms of ideas. But what we'd like to see is, 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 is what both Prof. Jonathan and Prof. and, 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 and Karen Moon have said is a partnership approach to the future with an understanding that government has been given the mandate by the people to govern, but no government can solve all of society's problems all by itself. Hence, the M plan borrows from the, the Marshall Plan that was introduced by America to Europe after the Second World War 
to augment and catalyze change that was already being driven by government. And therefore, the M plan or the initiative that we are doing are to help. They're not going to dismantle what government is doing or to displace what government is doing. And, and thus, at the first summit, we invited government and government came and endorsed the plan. But thirdly, the M plan is also about being a second eye, seeing the things that government can't see. Because when you're in the system, there are blind spots. And one of the things Karen has mentioned was we inherited a broken system. Mm. So just to keep, and Prof. Jonathan spoke about building on a broken foundation. So both Karen Moon and Prof. Jonathan are warning that this whole thing of reclaiming where we were, for example, post-COVID-19 is wrong. You've got to reset and build anew, starting with looking at why were things done in a particular way in the past? What was the legacy of that? How do you dismantle that legacy in order to move forward? And how does the business help? And business can help, for example, uh, Prof. Jonathan's book talks about broken classrooms and things like that. The M plan has two areas of investment. One is education, equalizing opportunities in education. Another one is helping people to lift themselves up by investing in SDG initiatives at community level. So each community at a wood level has to envision its future, decide where it wants to go, and in a very systematized way, invest in pathways to the future. So ladies, we are coming to the end. It always goes so fast. So I'm going to ask you both a simple question, which may have a very long answer or not. Um, Karen, I'm going to ask you first. I know that you say that you just stand around looking cute, but no, that's definitely not the case. (laughs) Although you always do have some fantastic outfits on, so I will say that. And I know that you have a really good designer who works with you. So it's a very simple question, but but we wanted to take take it upwards. And the question is this. What gives you both hope, given that it is so tough at the moment? I think ordinary South Africans. I mean, you know, one of the benefits of my job is that I have the ability or had the chance to go to some of the most rural areas in South Africa um, and engage with just ordinary people who, despite living in the most appalling conditions, uh, you know, keep getting up, keep trying to improve the circumstances of their lives and really intrinsically believe that change is possible. Um, and I think that we, we we often get so up in our heads about the kind of uh, manufacture of hatred that particularly we see on social media. But sometimes we're tempted to believe that our society is deeply divided and that we hate each other, all of us, and that none of us, there's no real prospect of hope. But when you engage with the real world, you, you absolutely know that that isn't true. And I think that we owe it to ourselves and to our country to really fight and to keep as, as uh, Prof. Marincella often quotes, I think it's Nelson Mandela on, choose hope over fear. Um, because, you know, there is a kind of power in that and there, there is a kind of energy in it. And yeah, that's, yeah. that's what I believe in. Prof. Marincella? Thank you. Similar to Karen, what gives me hope is looking at where we are versus where we come from. Yep. Exactly. Everything that we've achieved as a country 
despite the things we've gone through with each other and against each other, we overcame all of that. Why? Because of the kinds of people we are, the kinds of people that are resilient. And there's just so much Ubuntu in South Africa. And I get a sense that what has made us overcome the past has always been that spirit, that spirit of I can do this. You feel this among mm, young people true. today. They mm. exactly the same as the Pixlikasemes of the mm. past, Charlotte Maclege, uh, Oli Schreiner, who thought this is not the way things should be. There's a better way, and I'm going to work for that better way. You get that. And I'm certain that in the next 10 years, particularly between young people and women, we are going to make sure that we achieve the bulk of our sustainable development goals, particularly goal number 10 of advancing equality and goal number one of ending poverty. Professor Tuli Maroncella, Karen Moore, thank you so much for joining us. And as a closing word, I'd say go out and read those SDGs for 2030. They certainly do show value in terms of what we need to address. That's uh, it from us. Running a little bit late, we apologize, but what a great conversation. Thank you. It's 10 o'clock. It's no longer good morning. It's now goodbye.